Okay, we're going to move into the sermon part of the evening. First off, um, happy Mother's Day. It hasn't been said yet. Um, I want to say especially my mom is here for Mother's Day, so glad that she's here. And want to say second, too, that Mother's Day can be a, a day when we have a whole host of different experiences. We all have different relationships to our mothers, um, and some people have different relationships to motherhood that can be painful. So I want to say happy Mother's Day knowing that there can be some depth to that. So. We're not actually going to talk about Mother's Day today. We're going to talk about Sabbath uh, in preparation for my upcoming Sabbath. So to get us started, we've got three readings. Two of them are from the scriptures. One of them is a poem. So we'll start with Kirsten's. I'm just going to read from right here. That's great, yeah. Do not be deceived. Oh, sorry. Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. So we're talking about um, Sabbath tonight. And this is part of a longer set of sermons on Christian vocabulary words. So whether Christianity is your mother tongue and it feels uh, like second nature, or whether it still feels like a foreign language that you're not quite well adept at speaking, we think here in Branch that it's important to, to question these concepts that have been handed down and ask the question, do they still work? Are these just old dusty books that are lying on the shelf that have nothing left to say, or can they still speak to us? And if so, how do these ideas, sin, grace, God, Christ, the other ones we've said, being saved, how do those actually make our lives different? How do they cash out in real day-to-day -day human experience? So this week we're taking on Sabbath, which of course marks the day when God rested. So God works for six days in the story of creation, and on the sixth day, God rests. 
This, of course, is the word, Sabbath is the word, or Shabbat is the word the Jews still use to talk about what they do from Friday sundown to Saturday at sundown when they um, abstain from work. So the work weekends, and they do everything they can not to labor in that period. And it's the basis for the word sabbatical, which uh, is when professors take leave from their typical teaching duties to go and research and write books. But I've chosen this topic today because Sunday marks the beginning of my six-month-long Sabbath. Can I just say how much it warms my heart to see Tim Kim carrying a baby? <laughs> it, just, it just warms my soul. Anyway, I'm taking a six-month Sabbath, Sabbath starting today. This is my last Sunday with Root and Branch for a while. Um, my day job is a PhD student, and so I've got to get through this really rigorous qualifying exam thing that's coming up. And so um, before I can enter into the dissertation, I've got to get past these exams. So I am taking, um, this will take a lot of my energy for the next six months, and so I'm going to um, take a Sabbath. And that means I won't be at these services, and I won't be um, available for real talks, and I won't be at staff meetings. I will be um, ceasing from labor here in order to give myself to something else. And so this idea of ceasing from labor is the central idea of Sabbath. To cease and desist, to stop working, to put an end to labor in order to make space for something else. So on first blush, it seems like if we're stopping labor, this should be something that's a lovely, happy, blessed thing. But I think, as I've thought about this more, as it turns out, ironically, it's actually quite hard to pull this off well. So tonight I want to think about why Sabbath is good, why we should keep it around as an idea, but also think about why it's so hard to do. So last summer, Sarah and I were driving, uh, we took a week of Sabbath. We took one week in the middle that was just like, this is gonna be no work involved. And we went to the Rhodey family reunion in Webster, South Dakota. Uh, this trip came at a really good time for us because it, it was the end of a, what had been a really hectic, um, tiring year. We'd moved to a new neighborhood in Oak Park. We'd gotten married. Uh, Sarah started a job in a suburb far, far away. <laughs> and we were living here in the middle in Oak Park and commuting each direction, an hour each way, and we felt like we were kind of ships passing in the night where I would stay in Hyde Park one night or stay up here and Sarah would stay out west. And, we, we weren't seeing much of each other, uh, which turned out to be a bad thing because Sarah and I like to see each other <laughs> as part of uh, being married. And so there was actually this kind of growing unhappiness in our lives, um, but we, didn't, we hadn't really put our finger on it <clears throat> because our lives had become this kind of well-oiled machine that efficiently distributed our bodies and our energy to different tasks in different quadrants of Chicago and different suburbs. And so this machine worked so well that we hadn't really stopped or t taken time to stop and ask whether this machine itself was a good thing. Whether it was, or, or on the other hand, whether it was driving us crazy. And so this all came up on July 1st when our, our, our lease came up. And uh, when it came up in July, um, this machine that we'd created just kind of kept on chugging. And so we signed it, another year-long lease, without ever, ever, ever really asking, like, is this working for us? We didn't even think twice about it. So back on, the, back on the road in South Dakota, on the way back from grandma's family reunion, we were coming up on this hill. I think it might be the only hill in all of North Dakota. <laughs> and we looked out over all of these cornfields and, and soybeans and 
wheat flowing in the wind. It was very beautiful. And it was like having this, this high 30,000 foot, it felt like, perspective caused us to think about our lives in a different way. We, we started to think about how our life up to this point, one year into marriage, wasn't working as well as we'd like. This machine we'd constructed to get things done had become a kind of prison that we couldn't get ourselves out of and in fact was leading us to make decisions that weren't good for us. So it was actually stepping back from our work, stepping back from this kind of hectic life um, that we could finally allow us to see more clearly um, that we weren't living this life that we wanted to live. So in the middle of North Dakota, we decided to try to get out of this lease that we had just signed a month earlier and that we would have never signed had we actually taken the time to rest before that and think twice about what, what we were doing with our lives. So I think this story illustrates that in response to the question, is Sabbath, why is Sabbath a good thing? My first point is that so long as we remain consumed with our work, so kind of in the nitty gritty of it all, we will never enter the kind of head and heart space we need to ask the bigger question, is what we're working for really worth it? Is this thing that we're pouring out all of our labor and our time and energy worth all the time and energy? But it's still a hard thing to do. So it's good, but it's hard. You would think it's a good thing. Why don't we do this all the time? Why don't we just take breaks? There's some reasons. One reason, I think, maybe the most obvious one, is that we live in a world whose values have been deeply shaped by advanced capitalism. Rest from labor does not figure into the capitalist calculus because it would mean a decrease in efficiency and productivity, which happen to be the highest goods in a capitalist economy. This shows up for me very personally in the way that even on my days off, when I'm supposed to be off, I somehow feel guilty for not being productive and checking things off my list. It shows up when someone asks me how I'm doing, and my instinct is to say, ah, oh, things are really busy, but good, good. <laughs> and in the most absurd way, it shows up, I think, in myself and other people, when somehow we do this humble brag where we say that, oh, taking a vacation is so hard, and I just, I'm so bad at resting, as a way of being like, oh, I'm, I'm so bad at this thing, but in, real, in reality, I'm confirming that I'm the ideal, hardworking American, right? And capitalism is not the only bad guy, right? So religion is not immune from this. It's not that, yeah, it's not so easy as that. In fact, I think from our scripture that Kirsten read, there's a kind of proto-Protestant work ethic even in the scriptures. In this passage from Paul's letter to the Galatians, he tells us that you reap what you sow. Don't grow weary in doing what is right. There's this kind of, you're going to get back what you put in, so you better put your work in. We have, and, and I think that this cashes out in our, in our world today in some very, um, in some very particular ways. For example, this kind of uh, ethos where we have to work, we feel this need that we have to work to stop climate change. Good things. It's not just that we have to work hard to, to earn money and, and be productive for the capitalist economy. We also have to do these good things like um, work for racial equality. We have to work for social justice. There will be no rest until all are free. There's this kind of drive that, that inhabits the liberal conscience too that pushes us to work and work and work. And to settle for anything less is to sell out, to become complacent, and to become the white moderate that, that King uh, lifts up as the, as the 
what's holding back the civil rights movement in the letter from Birmingham jail. So on the one hand, we've got two little voices going here. We've got the voice of capitalism telling us that we should not rest for the sake of being productive. And on the other hand, we've got the guilty liberal conscience telling us not to rest until justice rolls down like waters. <clears throat> Both of these are active in my head, kind of on a daily basis. But I don't think that either of them get to the root of what's going on and what makes taking Sabbath so hard. The truth is that taking time for Sabbath is hard because it involves risk. When we rest from our labors, the people who have come to depend upon us stand to lose something. When we rest, we risk being seen as neglectful. In this creation story that Tundiwe read for us today, we read that God rested on the seventh day, but the Hebrew word for rest is very closely related to the Hebrew word for neglect, Shabbat and Shevet. It's the same root, it's identical. And so it only takes a little interpretive liberty for us to read the events of the seventh day of creation, not as God resting from the labor of creation, but as God neglecting creation. This presents an uncomfortable reading for me as I read it this week and found that that was a possible interpretation. But upon closer look, it does fit some of these facts. It casts God as a neglectful parent. God works hard to create humanity only to step out of the picture and allow everything to go pear-shaped. God's negligence starts a chain reaction of bad events. The serpent tempts Eve. Eve tempts Adam with the forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. And this sets the stage for the first violent episode in human history when Cain kills his brother Abel. This domino effect is one that we continue to face today in places as diverse as Auschwitz, Syria, Baltimore, the south and west side of Chicago, and even in our homes and in our families. The seeds of violence were sown the minute God took a break. This disturbing connection between rest and neglect points to what I think is a deeper reason why we're afraid to stop working. It's not just that capitalism keeps us anxiously checking our emails while we're on the beach, and it's not just that liberal guilt keeps donations flowing to Amnesty International. Rather, I think it's this deep, fundamental anxiety that if we take our eye off the ball for just a minute, there will be nothing left to keep the chaos from taking over. But if we read the Genesis story again, I think that there's more going on. For the first six days of creation, God was the only actor on the stage. God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates all the plant life. God creates all the animals. But until this point, God is the only actor on this stage. But on day six, things get more interesting and more complicated. What had been a one-person monologue becomes a dialogue, and then a trilogue, if that's a word. <laughs> on day six, God creates humids, humans in God's image, and now we have multiple actors and multiple creators on the scene. Humans are creating things too, like families and societies and culture. And in order to create space for someone else besides God to act and create, 
God pulls back. The contrast here is between God's activity on days one through six and God's relative passivity or rest or neglect on day seven. But when God rests, God also makes room for surprises. If God had kept a kind of tight grip on things, like a dictator, then surprises wouldn't have been possible. Humans would have been like puppets that just do the will of this puppet master. The price to pay for having surprises is a loss of control. It meant risking utter chaos. And in the face of this risk of chaos, God chooses not to subdue it the way a dictator or a tyrant, would, tyrant almost a Tywin Lannister, <laughs> a tyrant uh, would subdue a revolution, but God looks precisely to this chaos that is humanity as a creative partner. So the picture here is one in which God risks being called neglectful for the sake of a more beautiful, interesting, and more deeply textured world. Now, my point here is not to judge whether God's justified in doing this or not. This is a sermon about Sabbath, not theodicy. And frankly, I don't think it's all that helpful for us to speculate what we would do in that situation if we were God, because we're not. We live in a world in which the stage is already crowded with more actors than we know what to do with, and most of whom are already outside of our control. So subduing the chaos that is our world isn't an option for us. And when we pretend that we could even begin to control it, we're fooling ourselves. We are never as in charge of our work or our world as we pretend we are. And Sabbath forces us to confront this basic reality that the world generally gets on fine whether we check our email or not. And while we don't like to hear that truth, that we are not as important as we would like to think, the good news we can learn from this resting from our work is that sometimes things actually get on better than we could have ever imagined when we stop working and make room for others to act and work with us. I'll conclude with a little personal narrative. Some of you may know that I um, err on the side of type A, a bit of a control freak. Um, I make lists, I plan things out well in advance, I'm punctual. And some of you also may know that I work with two lovely men who do not always share all of these attributes equally. <laughs> They bring many other gifts, but those, you know, we just have different sets. And so over these three years ago, since I started working with my brothers, Neil and Tim, we've dealt with our fair share of chaos. Part of it is just church planning is chaotic, and that's going to be chaotic no matter what. But there's also just these differences. And in the midst of this chaos, I've had to give up a lot of control. There have been more than a handful of times when we were facing a big kind of pivotal decision about the direction that we wanted to kind of urge this community to go. And I fought hard and made compelling arguments and had my logic down. And yet, in order to try to get people to see things my way and get things done. And yet, and I say that this is, this is true, it's been precisely in those times when I thought I was most right and most pissed off that they weren't responding to my arguments the way I wanted that this community has grown and flourished in ways that I couldn't have imagined. That's happened over and over. 
This is all to say that I've learned a lot these past three years about how beautiful church and community can be when I stop trying to subdue the chaos and start to try to embrace it in some way as a creative partner. And I believe with my whole heart that this goes for this community now too, even in my absence. We are in the midst of some really big changes in leadership. Besides me leaving, there are also, we're also undergoing a huge expansion of community leadership. Some of our longtime leaders who are, are finally getting a long-deserved Sabbath and some new leaders are rising up to take their place and to push this community in new directions. And we're working hard, like Neil said in the announcements, to make sure that everyone who considers this community their home is some way plugged into leading and creating and, and not just consuming church, but creating it anew. So if, if the Root and Branch uh, stage started three years ago with Neil and Tim and Andrew, it has grown much more crowded with many more actors, with many more stories and many more gifts. This all has made things more chaotic and sometimes things have fallen through the cracks. But I think that the deeper truth is that what looks to us like chaos, what appears to us on this side of heaven is chaos. What looks like it might even push this community to its breaking point is not chaos at all, but the beckoning of the spirit, the call of the God who desires to create something new here in Chicago. It might be that precisely when order and structure seem most absent, that the God who makes order out of chaos is just getting started. And it might be that we, rather than seeking to control and subdue that spirit, might embrace it as a creative partner and hope beyond our wildest dreams that something new and beautiful and true and good might erupt where our illusions of control currently stand. Amen. 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 We're gonna break up into groups and I wanna think uh, more about this idea of Sabbath kind of with your people. So I've got three questions and just kind of meditate on these, um, share stories from your life Reflect on them as you will. When was the last time you had a good rest? And what was that like? Second, what did you learn from that good rest? And third, what is the thing, if you could put your finger on it, that gets in the way of you resting? So we'll take maybe eight to 10 minutes to talk that through. <laughs> 